Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie and Paul Utterback are our sound engineers. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation today, Dr. Christine Lazardi-Hajbi. Dr. Lazardi-Hajbi is Assistant Professor of Leadership and Formation, as well as Director of the Office of Professional Formation at ILIF School of Theology. Welcome, Christina, to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Dr. Westfield. So um, the notion of leadership leads directly to the notion of formation, right? So leaders help organizations and help theological education um, know their purposes and aims and missions, those kinds of meta concepts, right? We are in a moment when the aim of teaching and and teaching as formation I'm going to say is unknown, Mm. right? I was going to say contested. I don't think we know. I think we might have known 50 years ago. I don't think we know right now, but that's, that's me being (laughs) right. Maybe too, too specific. Tell me what you think about formation in its metaform, right? Do we know what we're doing? Do we know when we're, what we're aiming at? Yes. Oh, such a good question. And because I have the word formation in both of my titles, mm-hmm. I think a lot about this. I I think that you're right. We don't often know what we're doing in theological education in terms of formation, um, or at least we're not consciously aware of it. I think there are implicit understandings of formation and particular faculty may have a clearer sense of what they're doing in their teaching than others. But overall, it, it's it been something that I've reflected on a lot in terms of the overall implicit curriculum, explicit curriculum of how are we forming students uh, and how are we doing this work? I I also have a love-hate relationship with the word formation because I love it on the one hand because it makes explicit that which we are trying to do and that which is happening in theological education. Education is a formational endeavor, um, no matter how you spin it, no matter how you talk about it. On the other hand, there is somewhat of a sense that we might be coercing. Formation always has sort of an end goal, right? So I have colleagues who really despise the word formation because they think, oh, well, we're, you know, we don't want to be uh, brainwashing or um, sort of having students or folks conform to particular ideas, especially at my institution. It's all about asking the right questions. How do we ask questions? How do we critically analyze or critically assess something. And so the word formation for them conjures up uh, not helpful images. At the same time, however, we have to understand that everything we do, even the questioning, even the, the moves toward critical analysis that we want our students to be able to engage in is a kind of formation. It's all formation. Uh, it's based on values, certain um politics, right? There's politics of education. It's it's based on some foundational uh, elements that f- the word formation helps to presence. 
Uh, and we think about formation in all sorts of ways. Uh, some faculty may be more interested in the intellectual formation, right? And the content knowledge. Others may be more interested in spiritual formation. And I think the different spaces and places of a theological institution that incite or invite these different kinds of formational aspects. There's emotional formation. There's, um, as the ATS standards say, the new ATS standards, human formation. What does that mean? This holistic formation sense of the person. So uh, those are the kinds of things I think about. Um, I don't think there is, a, at least in my institution, there's not a cohesive or coherent sense of what we mean by formation, although we are undertaking a process of curricular revision over the next several years. And so that is a topic that we are going to be returning to again and again. And I don't even know that there will be a consensus on what we mean by this work. So I love the notion that you say education is inherently formational. Education is a formational endeavor. That to me is the brilliance of education, right? I would be satisfied if we would just make that claim and then, right, instead of inviting students in to say, we're not gonna do anything to you, we're not gonna do anything for you, just come and sit and learn with us. It's like, well, you don't understand the power of learning or the, you know, if, if you do that. So I think it's a step forward if it's not a contested notion to say education is inherently formational. Right. Yes. Then we can get into the conversation. Sometimes we can't even get that far down the road. But for those of us who can get that far down the road, I then also love the idea that you're talking about inciting formation. Right. Because so many so many teachers want to say education is for transformation. I guarantee you no adult learner signs up to be transformed. Nobody, no, no adult comes to a classroom or degree program and says, yes, please transform me. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and uh, the other problem that you've just highlighted about the word formation is that it is incomplete. I think some folks, uh, some I may want to come for transformation, but I know very few, right? Like you've said, very few want to come for transformation. What ends up happening a lot of times in theological education, at least in, in my institution, is this sort of unformation, right? The deconstruction of known ways of doing and being and of beliefs that students have held for a long time. Uh, there's also this sense of co-formation, right? We're doing this as a communal thing. It's not just individualistic. And when I have conversations with students about vocational formation, calling, sense of purpose, um, we've been really intentional, at least at ILIF, to infuse that with who are your people that you're accountable to? Who are your communities? Because formation is not an individualistic endeavor. An endeavor. Leadership is not an individualistic endeavor. And so um, th there are many different kinds of formation, and they're not always building on something. There is deconstruction. There's unformation or deformation that happens in the process as well. So students are not often prepared for that. They're not prepared for transformation, for unformation, for co-formation, none of that, because they're just coming into this saying, I want a degree so I can do X, Y, and Z. And the kind of formations that they're drawn to 
are very interesting too, because they're based on their experiences and their identities of who they are, mm-hmm. um, who they, who their communities have uh, sent them to be sometimes here at, at the Ilith. And sometimes that sense changes where students may think, well, I'm, I'm actually um, discerning something different for my path. Perhaps it's toward a uh, doctorate in theological education, or perhaps it's toward not ministry, but uh, social justice work in a secular space, or, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, it, it's complex. And the fact that um, those of us who are trained in theological education in the academy, we're not often prepared to help students in these other kinds of formational ways, because we've been formed in a particular kind of way. And how do we remain attentive to all of the different ways that students can, should be, and are formed, um, not only through theological education, but through their life and who they are in their experiences? So I, uh, one time at uh, my former, my for, the former school where I was on faculty, um, at a curriculum revision uh, encounter, um, I pitched the idea that we simply ask faculty to teach whatever they want to teach and come to the realization that students learn the faculty person. And it doesn't matter what the name of the course or the content of the course is, that students come, sit with the person, learn the person. So in that case, ask the person to teach what they're thinking about. Then in that in that moment, not that class, but you know, over that arc of time, what's their research? What's hot? Don't bind them to a certain guild-related literature. Of course, my idea went down smoking. <laughs> so I, I think so much of teaching is relational. So much of teaching is being together in community with each other. Right. I'm very aware that that students are studying um, the bodies of faculty as much as they're studying what they're reading. Right. And part of that is being an African-American woman, an an African-American woman's body in the classroom and the politics of body in the classroom. And part of it is just our own curiosity as learners. Who is this person who's standing in front of me with this kind of authority that's not meant to be oppressive? but meant just out of curiosity that we don't recognize in the formational aspects of learners. The complexity of how you put all that stuff together seems to be trivialized whenever we say things like learning outcomes, (laughs) (laughs) required courses. So I was trying to get past that, but I I I didn't get past 10 minutes of recommendation. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's really unfortunate because I I agree completely. I think that's the way to go in theological education. And of course, we have things like ATS standards, but but I believe that there's room and breadth for schools to be able to articulate, well, what are we doing here? What are our overall outcomes? And then how do we as human beings, as educators, do this work, not just in the not constrained by the disciplines in which you are taught. The text is the first, the person is the first text that students read in a classroom, the teacher, and then the other students, right? The, The person is the first text that students read. And so being attentive to that, the dynamics, dynamics are being read all of the time. And all of that is influencing 
formation. It's all formation. And formation is happening to all of us at the same time. It's not just happening upon students. It's happening to us who are educators as well. And so presencing that, making that explicit and saying, what do we want to learn together? What do we want to gain together in terms of outcomes is is a really important thing. I used to teach a course on community organizing and we would co-create the learning outcomes for the course. We would look at the learning outcomes that were for the course, but as an exercise in community building, community creation and advocacy, the students would then say, well, are these the, the goals of the course? Are these the outcomes we want? And then how do we advocate for outcomes that aren't selected here? So it's a real exercise in helping um, students to take more of an ownership in their own their own courses. I I actually happen to love learning outcomes um, because again, it makes explicit what we are doing and aligning the work in the courses with the work that we're doing. So in my courses, all of my assignments are attached to one of the learning outcomes because I want students and I want myself, <laughs> me, to see what I am doing is actually moving us somewhere. Um, Of course, those may be contested, but let's contest them and work them out together as a community. And in speaking as a Latina woman, I can't not be who I am in the space of the classroom. And I think just creating an attentiveness and an explicitness to who we are and how we are in the classroom with one another is something that I've had to develop as a real skill because I cannot divorce my body and who I am from what I teach. And so all of what I teach includes me because they students are the first text, right? That gets read. So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's a lot of so thoughts I, about I all that. I think it absolutely answers the question. It also, um... It makes me afraid because we still have, I say we, you know, the royal we, such resistance to the humanity of classrooms, such reliance upon formation as information, right? And all in all your transformation, um, you know, all the, the, the formations that you did, we didn't say information. Mm. Um, so many of us are re- rely on learning outcomes as about what information have I provided in even in an assortment of ways, which is which is probably the farthest from what I'm interested in, even in the 21st century. Um, one of the assignments that I gave uh, one semester was, I gave out the syllabus, right? Learning outcomes, all that stuff in it. Then the assignment was near the end of the semester, write the syllabus of what actually happened. Mm. Write the syllabus of your own learning with the categories that are in the syllabus. It was fascinating. Now, the thing that was most fascinating is how diverse the syllabi were Mm. and the claims of learning. That's why I think what happens in classrooms, I'm agreeing with you, what happens in classrooms is so complex that mapping it is not impossible, but we go at it in ways that don't help us, that we, we, we use the wrong tools to do the job we're trying to do. So how do you write the syllabus for what actually happens not for what you're aspiring to have happen 
or what you wrongly are assuming should happen? Mm. <clears throat> I I would say it's nearly impossible to write a syllabus that will ultimately result in the kinds of learning outcomes that you articulate fully. And I think acknowledging that yes. is part of the yes. process. Say that. Yes. <laughs> right. right. I mean, we education, again, it's an aspirational endeavor. And it's an endeavor on which faculty and educators have only a modicum of control. That's that's the ultimate thing. We have hopes of what we hope students learn. It may be something completely different that they do learn. And I've had students come back to me and say, I learned this in your class. Thank you so much for, for what you taught me here or, or how you helped me through this difficult moment in my life or just the attentiveness to understanding one's own identities and positionalities in leadership and teaching a leadership class is something that some students have never thought of because we've all been conditioned to only see education as information. And I, I see this also uh, in the academy, especially in my own institution, but in other institutions, in the creation of many us, I would say, many Dr. Lazardi Hodgbees, you know, many Dr. Westfields to say, if I can create and inform people in the way that I've been informed, I will have done my job. And I'll be honest, I, that I think that's wonderful in some ways. I think it's also very egotistical. And I think it's a limit to our imaginations of who we are as educators in doing that kind of work. And oftentimes, for folks who have been so ingrained in the information of education, um, they may be brilliant scholars and theologians and thinkers and writers. But sometimes I just want to say to a student, do you know how you show up in a space? Are you aware of that? Are you aware of what's going on inside you, in here, and how that's informing? And that's the difficult work of formation, because it's this internal, external dialogue that we're trying to teach students. At least we are in, in contextual education, which is the area where I'm most in, in leadership formation. Um, but in other disciplines, there's not that attentiveness to that inner outer self-reflexivity. A colleague told me one time, which, which uh, is still with me, and it's been about 25 years later, that the students who excel the most are the ones who would be successful already after school. The ones that we gravitate toward could, can use us, can make use of us, can learn from us, but they really don't need us. That we're teaching to the wrong population. We should be, if we're interested in learning and not just teaching, teach to the students who will not be so successful without our formation, information, transformation. We don't do that, right? The student who we, the students we gravitate toward are the ones who will go out and be successful already. Yes. So we yearn for the for their attention and try to not pay so much attention to the ones who could benefit the most from what we have to offer if we could figure out how to offer it. 
Does that make sense? I mean, it's yes, yes, it makes so much sense. And and I, I've noticed this for students of color often, and and even as myself as a student going through an MDiv program, um, I yearned for those more holistic kinds of experiences in theological education, right? Not just teaching to the intellectual, to the top, right? To the, you know, I, to form human beings in their own context, to, to help us be successful or uh, success is a capitalistic word in some ways, <laughs> but, but to help us thrive. In our so I'm not talking about the students that would be remedial, but I am talking about the students who feel like they have figured stuff out, right? Do show up well, right? Do you know have resources, know how to how to navigate those resources. The students who don't know how to show up, the students who can't navigate all there is to navigate in the place called classroom and degree program, probably need most of our attention. For the most part, we're not geared, our learning outcomes are not geared for those people. No, they are not. They are absolutely not. And I think it's difficult because sometimes those are the folks who require the bulk of our attention and attentiveness, and we are pulled in all these other different directions and not able to give that attention. And and that also goes to students who are neurodiverse or have different learning modalities, that we're not attuned to that either in those ways. And um, at least in the courses I have, I try to be really intentional about appealing and having assignments and content be accessible and demonstrate a variety of learning modalities, uh, media, art, those kinds of things. So, I, I mean, I think our conversation is what many colleagues would say. This is why I'm just going to pay attention to my own expertise and the content of my course. I can't figure out this thing called teaching. Right. You know what I mean? It's like it's too yeah. complex. You haven't given me any formulas. You haven't given me any recipes. As a matter of fact, you took the few formulas and recipes I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what do we what do we say to those colleagues? Rather than just kind of leaving them high and dry, you know, good luck with that. See ya. Like are there, what are give us one or two handles for early career people or people who just feel like they're stymied in their teaching to say, how do I teach better than than what I'm doing right now in terms of formation? Mm. That's a good question. I, I'm a student of Adrian Marie Brown and emergent strategy. And one of her uh, tenets of emergent strategy is small is good. Small is all. And if we, it's not a matter of changing all the things all at once, because that is too overwhelming, but change often happens in the small moments and in adjusting an assignment, for example, or in presenting your content in just a slightly different way to make it more accessible, Uh, connecting things to popular media, connecting to, um, uh, you know, different sources of wisdom. The other piece is more of an attentiveness to the whole person. And that shows up anyway, in all sorts of ways. Students have very complex and complicated lives. They're asking for extensions on assignments. They're sharing with you, you know, personal things that are going on in their lives. Um, They're late or they don't show up and you don't know why. So, So life is 
getting in there in some way. And we can see that life that students have as a hindrance to our teaching, or we can see it as an opportunity for further connection and co-formation. Those are just a couple of the things that I am thinking about. This work of formation, again, it's happening. It's happening around us. It's happening to us. It's happening regardless. The question is, who is being formed? What are we being formed in? And what is the purpose of that? And some of that is in our control. Mm -hmm. And some of that is not. But an attentiveness to the whole person, to our emotional responses, to our effectual responses, to the, the role of trauma in the shaping of some students' responses and experiences. Um, How does privilege uh, affect some students more than others who have been more uh, entrenched in the educational system that we're in or more attuned to it? So all of those things, just being attentive and making small shifts in a syllabus or how you work with students or how you approach students can really make a big difference. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for your um, your insight. I think the issue of formation is both timely um, and has to be dealt with as we figure out new models of education, as we figure out crumbling higher education, crumbling theological education. I think one of the questions that we have um, not grappled with sufficiently is the very question that you raise. It's about the aim, what is the aim of formation? What is the aim of teaching? So thank you for priming the pump with that question. Thank you, Lynn. To our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for information about our cohort groups, resources on teaching and the teaching life, as well as our regranting program. A special thanks to podcast producer Rachel Mills and the music which frames our podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? <laughs>